Welcome to Birkbeck Voices, the monthly podcast about the latest news and research from Birkbeck, University of London. I'm Guy Collender. In this programme, we're going to focus on international development, a complex subject that often polarises opinion. I'll be speaking to two academics about their new books in this field, Race, Racism and Development by Dr Kalpana Wilson and Migration, Health and Inequality, co-edited by Dr Jasmine Gideon. We begin with the health of migrants, a growing concern as 214 million people are international migrants today. I'm joined by Jasmine Gideon, a lecturer in development studies at Birkbeck, to find out more. Jasmine, thank you for joining us in the studio. Well, thank you, Guy, for inviting me and um, yeah, giving me the opportunity to speak about this book. Firstly, what type of health problems are faced by migrants and what have your colleagues written about in the book? Well, I think, first of all, we've got to recognise that um, the term migrants encompasses a very diverse group, that on the one hand we have economic migrants um, coming in search of work, but at the same time, you know, this does also in- incorporate people who are perhaps fleeing conflict or uh, are refugees. So, so therefore, you know, there's a, a, a huge range of health problems. People will have experienced great levels of trauma if they're escaping from from conflict areas. It also includes trafficked people, particularly women and children, who may perhaps have experienced sexual abuse um, and have subsequently experienced uh, reproductive health problems. But also um, what what evidence seems to suggest is amongst economic migrants, there are huge levels of stress-related diseases and, and mental health issues that are, that are coming out um, that are quite often unrecognised, um, in part because people are reluctant to admit to them, but also they're less, they're less visible, they're, less, they're not as easy to diagnose. And what obstacles do migrants face when accessing healthcare? Well, initially, obviously, there is clearly uh, important legal barriers. Without citizenship, you generally lack entitlements to access health care. But at the same time, there are a lot of practical barriers that are much more um, what we term informal barriers in, 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 the, in the book. And these can be things like language, um, particularly more um, less widely known languages, and perhaps there aren't interpreting services available or... If they live in a particular borough, there aren't resources to pay for interpreting services. It can be about um, a lack of understanding how the NHS works. The, the concept of the um, GP is quite unique in, in, in Britain, and a lot of other countries have never come across this concept of a GP. So don't understand that you need to go to your GP uh, before being referred on to hospital services. And people get confused and, and just don't really know how to use the service um, there's a lot of evidence of um, N- uh, GP surgeries where the, the um, receptionist acts as the gatekeeper and um, because they don't like the person or because of their own racist views or views about you know entitlements and who should and shouldn't be able to use services will prevent people from registering with um, the NHS practice. So there are a whole range of issues that people face in terms of accessing healthcare. So if you have two people with the same condition, be it diabetes or HIV, how they experience that condition will very much depend on where they come from, whether they're local to the area, lived there their whole life, understand the system, or whether they're a migrant, they've come here from abroad and unfamiliar with how things work. Uh, definitely, yes. I mean, clearly, if you're born and brought up within the NHS system, you understand how it works, you know where you need to go. 
Um, but if not, you might uh, face a lengthy time delay in, in trying to find an NHS uh, GP that will take you on. And then um, what, what um, in fact, what, what Felicity Thomas talks about in her book chapter, one of the authors in the book, is, um, is, is different cultural understandings of how um, health and illness are conceptualised, but also how then um, particular conditions are treated. And she speaks at great length about the cultural differences in, in um, treating HIV AIDS, the difficulties in prescribing antiretrovirals to migrants from particular parts of Africa because of cultural notions about health and healing that don't recognise these more biomedicalised approaches. That's a huge barrier that you have to overcome before you are able to effectively engage with the NHS. And you've written a chapter in the book about the health-seeking behaviour of Latin American migrants in London. What did you find out from your research? Well, I think one of the most striking things is that popular opinion around migrants seems to be that you know they they come here they they use our resources they go to the nhs and take health care away from more needy indigenous uh, populations but actually my research suggested that the reality was very different and that on the whole a significant proportion of the latin american population do not use the nhs unless uh, that you know it's a serious emergency that generally they tend to uh, go to alternative health health providers. These might be um, regulated or unregulated Latin American doctors or Spanish-speaking doctors who've perhaps set up a private practice. But also there's a lot of evidence that um, people either telephone friends and family in Latin America or even health providers in Latin America and ask for medication to be sent over to Britain and they just self-medicate. Or again, a, a significant number of people, including you know very low-paid, low-income uh, Latin American individuals, will return back to Latin America once a year and um, sort of save up all their health problems until they go home and then go and see a doctor in Latin America because they're so reluctant uh, to use the NHS, partly because they've heard bad things from other people or they've had a personally bad experience themselves, or again, they just don't really understand how the system works and, and feel it's easier to you know, not engage with the system here and just wait till they go home at Christmas, usually, um, rather than, than deal with it in any other way. And what solutions or approaches should be followed to improve the health of migrants? Well, obviously, I think there needs to be a lot more recognition um, and understanding around the you know, different ways of understanding health and illness and health and well-being that then needs to be incorporated into the NHS and into day-to-day practice in hospitals, health centres and for you know, doctors and other healthcare professionals to understand the, the complexities and the, the, the diverse ways there are amongst different groups of migrants of you know, looking at health and illness and health and, and, and treatment and, and to also recognise these different kinds of health-seeking behaviour and obviously, of course, the NHS can't be expected to respond to, to all of these issues, but at least to try and reflect some of this practice into everyday workings of, of, of medical treatment. Um, but also, I think, you know, there needs to be um, a, a more at a government level, policy level, some kind of um, understanding of the significant discrepancies there are that exist between 
you know, international human rights laws. You know, Britain, amongst others, have signed up to the uh, to, to international covenants which guarantee the right to health. Yet at the same time, we are not um, able to fulfil that obligation. Dr. Jasmine Gideon, thank you very much for sharing your insights, and we wish you all the best with your book. Thank you very much. Our next interview also focuses on a book about international development, race, racism and development, interrogating history, discourse and practice. The book challenges what happens in the name of development and highlights how the racism and unequal power relations of the colonial period still exist today. The book's author is Dr Kalpana Wilson, LSE Fellow in Gender Theory, Globalisation and Development at LSE's Gender Institute and a visiting lecturer at Birkbeck where she teaches on the MSc Development Studies course. Kalpana, thank you for joining me in the studio. Thank you, Gary. First of all, how did you come to write the book? The book actually was a long time in the writing, and it partly came um, directly out of a course which I have been teaching for several years at Birkbeck. I found it a very exciting experience to teach it because it brought together so many different strands of things which I was interested in, and I had a really... Um, positive response from students. I learned a lot from them in the process and teaching it made me particularly aware that there really was a need for something like this. And the book questions many of the assumptions and realities of international development. Do you regard much of the development sector as racist? Um, Well, you know, I think one thing I should say at this point is that the book isn't... um, telling people how to do development better. You know, it's not a guide to how to somehow make development less racist. Because in my view, um, the concept of development itself is really rooted in in racialized um, ideas and material relationships and structures. And that's something which I elaborate on quite a lot in the book. Um, Having said that, I do also talk about the kind of huge... Um, silence around race and racism in development organisations. The fact that, for example, you only need to go into the the offices of of, um, any development NGO or um, development organisation, you only need to look at their website, in fact, to be um, confronted with this division between those who are um, supposedly being helped by their activities, who are represented as um, almost always as women, and or children and who will always be represented um, smiling um, the people from the global south and on the other hand the people who work in these organizations are still overwhelmingly white and certainly those who are projected as as experts on how development should be done are almost exclusively white but i do also argue that challenging um the whiteness of development through kind of multicultural strategies is not going to change um, the racialization of development. And in fact, um, in one of the chapters, I look at the way in which DFID um, and USAID and um, other development institutions are increasingly uh, trying to incorporate diasporas um, in the development project. So in a way, these institutions are trying to co-opt the diaspora, deny other groups any sort of agency? Um, I think, I mean, I think what they're trying to do really is incorporate them very much into what I see as a kind of contemporary imperialist project. And I think um, this is very much to do with the way in which um, 
neoliberalism in particular as the kind of current still dominant development model has this tremendous capacity to appropriate um, critiques and kind of um, depoliticize them and um, absorb them. You speak about the importance of the relationship between race and capital. How are these connected? Well, one of the things I look at in the book is um, the way in which historically um, the emergence of ideas about development have been inextricably linked with the emergence of ideas um, about race and with theories of racial inequality. And I look at the way in which um, development is very closely associated with the consolidation of capitalism and the way in which the emergence of capitalism in Europe was, of course, completely dependent upon the accumulation of uh, surpluses from racialized slavery and from colonialism. Um, So in a way, these three things are kind of inextricably linked. And this relationship is very pertinent today, and you cite some examples in the book. Yes, that's right, because I feel that it's not simply a matter of colonial legacies, as it's often portrayed. Race continues to be a very central element which makes the continuation of global capital accumulation possible. Um, And I give, uh, one of the examples I give is um, that of the HIV and AIDS pandemic, particularly in sub-Saharan Africa. And I talk about how, you know, it's really uh, racist ideas which value certain lives more than others, which have made it possible Um, for so many millions of lives to have been needlessly lost. Um, And we only have to think about um, um, what the response would have been if something on that scale had been happening in in Europe and North America um, to see um, how central and how lethal the effects of of, um, the idea of race is here. In response to all these challenges, you refer to the possibilities for transnational political solidarity at the end of the book and you are a member of the South Asia Solidarity Group. What are the possibilities for transnational political solidarity? Um, Well, in the book, I actually talk about two approaches to transnational solidarity and and contrast them. Um, And this is where I talk about the struggle um, which is ongoing of the people of Niamgiri in Orisha in India, um, who are engaged in, an, in, an, in a very protracted resistance to um, bauxite mining by um, Vedanta, which is a UK-listed company. Um, it's, a, it's, a, it's a mining corporation. I talk about the way in which um, a number of NGOs have been involved in publicising this issue, but have, have very much projected a representation of the people of Niamgiri as essentially what I see as the kind of trope of the noble savage, people who are completely um, cut off from any kind of contact with wider society and states and other actors, people who are, you know, timeless, whose uh, traditions have not changed and so on. So I see this as a very racialized representation, but I also link this to the role of NGOs um, in um, depoliticizing, attempting to depoliticize these movements. So um, not, in fact, giving any publicity to the kind of concrete demands which are being made. And also the fact that a lot of these 
a uh, number of these NGOs are actually also working directly with the corporates. And on the other hand, I look at the kind of um, transnational political solidarity, which is involved not only working directly to publicize the demands which are coming out of um, people's organizations on the ground, um, but which also acknowledge that, are, that there are um, struggles going on in this country um, which have direct connections with these. So it refuses to uh, accept this, the portrayal of the global north as a kind of place where um, there are no longer any contradictions, nobody is oppressed, and all people really need to do is to somehow help to save these poor people in the global south. Um, another example, which actually is very contemporary, um, is um, an initiative I've been involved with and which South Asia Solidarity has been involved with, along with a number of South Asian and other women's organizations in Britain to um, try to um, show solidarity with the anti-rape movement going on in India at the moment. And that's involved um, trying to do a number of things at the same time, because on the one hand, it's about publicizing the demands of this movement, which grew up very much um, from below, from the ground level, and which um, very quickly went beyond simply talking about uh, the demands for justice in this horrific um, uh, rape case, which took place at the end of last year but began to raise wider questions about women's freedom, about the role of the state in um, perpetuating um, gender violence, um, about the immunity of the armed forces and the police from prosecution in such cases, and many other questions. So it broadened out tremendously. Um, so it was about um, telling people about those things which were going on, but it was also here in Britain about um, countering the kind of... Um, racist and quite colonial portrayals in a lot of the media of what was happening in India, which was, despite this really vibrant movement, was still saying, well, you know, um, Indian women are victims of Indian men who are kind of inherently violent. Um, India, Indian culture is a culture of rape, and this is something unique. And in the process, what this does is make invisible um, struggles against gender violence taking place in Britain. So we were actually raising those questions. Um, we were working with organizations in this country who are confronting many similar issues and making those connections, making those links. Dr. Kalpana Wilson, thank you very much for sharing your insights. And that brings us to the end of this month's podcast. For more information about Birkbeck's news, events and courses, visit www.bbk.ac.uk. Thank you.